electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the NASDAQ market site right here in New York's Times Square. This is Fast Money. I am Brian. And for Melissa tonight, welcome everybody. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Bonwin Ice. Tonight on Fast, stocks staging a monster comeback as the market wipes out all of yesterday's losses. So, is this an all clear or simply too soon to break out any kind of a rally cap? We're going to find out. Plus, the chart master is drilling down on today's crude comeback. Carter War seeing some big opportunity in big oil. He's going to read the Texas tea leaves ahead. And we are all over the after hours disaster from DocuSign. Shares down 25% right now. The guidance, needless to say, not what Wall Street wanted to hear. The company's conference call is underway. Debos is dialed in. She will pop on with any of the key news. All right, let's go. We have got a lot more to do, but we begin with what else? The rip-roaring rally on Wall Street. Stocks surging to end the day. Lots of buyers moving in, and they bought up really all kinds of stocks. The Dow rallying nearly 620 points, almost 2% for its best day since March. Almost all Dow stocks were higher, except for those six you see on the screen. Apple, the biggest decliner. The Nasdaq rising nearly a percent, but Amazon, Microsoft, Meta, a.k.a. Facebook, and Tesla actually had the gall to fall. So, Guy Adami, how do you make sense of today's moves? We so, First of all, hello, Brian. Good to see you. How are you? You there? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, as I say, we always try to explain things like there's certain things that are unexplainable. The Loch Ness Monster, why the Detroit Lions are still in the NFL. And days like today make zero sense to me. Maybe the other three can, uh, you know, illuminate me. But I have no idea why today is happening. I'll say this, you know, and I'm sure Bonneman has some thoughts. The fact that the VIX is still 28 leads me to believe, and I'm not going to get too inside baseball here, but there's something we call negative gamma in the business. That means yep. as the market goes higher, people that are short volatility have to buy more. And when it goes lower, they got to sell more. And we saw that in um, a really in a great light yesterday. And to a certain extent, I think we saw it today. I'm fascinated to see what happens tomorrow on the back of that jobs number and what the wage number is, because we could see the exact opposite tomorrow. Without question, that's a high probability. Yeah, Tim, listen, negative gamma. I mean, because of the volume, and we'll get to bottom one in a second, because the volume of options trading has exploded so much, these once type of you know, setups that we never talked about have become material to the markets. Do you think that was at play here? Like, I, let's get away from negative gamma. I don't even understand what gamma is. Bonwin does. Guy kind of does. Um, let's just talk about growth. And, and it's clear that the market is a, a lot less concerned about inflation uh, or what the Fed has been talking about. Three more Fed governors out today uh, to your notes uh, telling you that the Fed is moving faster. The market is less concerned about inflation than they are growth. So to me, uh, and we talked about this last night, Karen brought this up, uh, I brought this up, the, the, the Omicron dynamic is, is actually been the headline that's been knocking the market down. So you have Pfizer out there today 
more constructive in their comments. I, look, I think right now um, the market wants to continue to see growth and reopening and is less concerned about what the Fed is doing. Now, I know Scott Miner is going to come on in a second and enlighten us on the curve as he does. Um, I just think that the markets right now, tomorrow, want a strong payroll number. I know the Fed is always out there. And I say more than anybody, I think, you know, look, more Fed equals more volatility. But right now, the market is playing on growth. And we've seen that the last couple of days. And that was what today's action was about. Yeah, fair enough. And there's B.C. and uh, A.C. when it comes to the Fed before confirmation and after confirmation. Quite the switch from the Fed head. But bottom line, again, we're not going in the weeds here. I think what Guy is trying to say, and I certainly don't want to put words in his mouth, is that while we're, we're all about the Greek letters, Omicron, Delta and Gamma at this point, it may not just be the <laughs> one thing. Omicron getting the headlines, but underneath that market, right underneath the hood, Bonwin, there are other dynamics at play, I would imagine, because you can't be down 500 one day and up 600 the next when nothing has changed. Uh, certainly. And I think Guy brings up a good point into and what Guy likes to say. Don't go casting aspersions at my guy. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit shocking, actually, going into year in for dealers to be set up in a situation where they're short gamma, particularly when you start to see a risk off parts posture going into the latter final innings um, of the year. And ultimately what this does, again, without getting too far in the weeds, is you're kind of short convexity. So the higher things go, you're forced to buy higher and chase them higher. And the lower things go, you're forced to chase them lower. And you know what? I think we got a little drunk off of that sub 16 VIX. It kind of lulled people to sleep. I think quite a few of us um, have been on here saying, listen, it's probably a good time to pick up some cheap protection. But I think there was a bit of a lull there. And now, not only are you forced to, to, you know, to, to buy protection to kind of flatten out your situation, you're having to play catch up as well. And, and it's that additional volatility that we're seeing play through with some of the, uh, some of the swings that we're all talking about. Karen, I do feel like we've, and it's my fault, we're in the weeds. I, I did it. I, I take full blame for ruining the show tonight. But again, take us out of the weeds then. Get us to what we need to know. What do we do? What do you do, right, as somebody who buys for the do? long haul with this kind of a market right. where you just don't know what tomorrow is going to bring? Yeah, I've never thought of myself as a weed whacker, but I guess that's my job here. So I, to me, there were some things to buy today. Right. Things that there was this giant rotation as well as the overall market being up. But right. We saw Fang really, really underperform. And we saw a little bounce back in some of those high flyers. But the cheaper things really started to do well. So we talk even though the twos, tens, which Tim always points out, were weaker today. We actually saw banks get a very, a very big bid. So that's just to me saying people are looking to buy cheaper valuation stocks because the fed is telling us and as tim said you know we had we had powell twice we had mester last night we had bostic today they're telling you they're tapering faster and that's fine we can we can survive in a fed tightening because if you think even if they do taper quicker and start to raise i don't know next spring we're still at a very accommodative very low level of interest rates so i think if we can have the fed tighten but also have growth that the market can do fine. So I bought some Viacom, which trades awfully. We'll get to that later. Um, some Morgan Stanley, a little bit of Facebook, um, mm. and sold a little bit of Matterport, the high flyer kind of name.
Okay, sold a little bit of that. But, you know, Guy Adami, going to that point about the Federal Reserve, there's tapering and then there's tightening. And to, to Karen Poulan, Weed Eater, Feinerman's point just now, uh, we can go up when the Fed starts to tighten. 1994, I think, where they raised, what, 250 basis points, excuse me, 2.5%, and the Dow rose 33% in 1995. It's, it's possible. Yeah, no question it's possible. And I've said this many times. I mean, I'm no fan of the Fed, but they've done a masterful job of speaking to the market. You know, take October 2018 out of the mix, and they've been spot on in terms of saying what the market wants to hear. And quite frankly, I think they're doing a pretty good job now. The question, though, is, you know, can this market withstand it? I would submit, correctly or incorrectly, that, you know, the valuations that we're seeing now, close to 21 and a half, 22 times in terms of the S&P on a valuation basis, I mean, it might make sense in one environment. If rates start going meaningfully higher, it's not going to make sense and we're going to mean revert in terms of where that valuation is. So, yeah, I think they've done a great job. Uh, But you also made a great point. You know, AC, BC, what did you say? Before confirmation, after confirmation. And Karen talked about this on Tuesday night. And, you know, I spent a lot of the night thinking about it. You know, this is a Fed that never, ever would talk about inflation the way they did. And all of a sudden, the first time Jerome Powell opens his mouth since yeah. being, you know, being get that nomination, he's talking about fighting inflation, which is fascinating if you think about what this administration is trying to do. So I think there's going to be a concerted effort to do exactly that, which is great, by the way. They should have done a long time ago. I just don't think it's particularly constructive for the market. Yeah, it seems a little like there's more flip-flops there than a seaside park beach shop. I want to show you guys very quickly one thing before we get to Scott Minard, which is, Amazing how rational the market can be. I showed this on CNBC's uh, Worldwide Exchange. It's on at 5 a.m. for some reason. And back in May, when the Delta variant news hit, the S&P fell 4.8% from May 7th to May 12th. Coming into this morning, the S&P 500 was down what? 4.8% since the Omicron news came. Random? Maybe interesting or just completely unrelated. Who knows? But I made the graphic myself and I was proud of it. So we showed it. All right. Your first guest tonight is somebody who has made some big, bold calls the past few years. Tim referenced him. And now he's making what could be another one. Scott Minard is the global CIO of Guggenheim Partners. And he recently tweeted thus, quote, with the 30-year Treasury bond at 175, expected to return to 1.4%. As for the 10-year note, if it goes below, if it goes below 1.4, it is likely to head to 1.2. Scott joining us now by phone. Scott, welcome. Good to have you on. Okay, so you're saying what could happen. Do you think it will happen? Well, Brian, yes, I do, Uh, to be direct. Uh, I, I think that uh, you know, what we're seeing right now with all the talk of tapering uh, and accelerating uh, taper uh, is sending a message that the Federal Reserve is extremely serious about inflation. And um, the market, the long end of the, the yield curve, uh, 10 years, 30 years, are starting to uh, adjust their expectation on rates based upon the fact that the Fed will uh, eventually uh, act in a, in a way that may be actually a little bit too aggressive, uh, that, that actually might induce a recession. Do you think a recession? I mean, if you look at the bond market, real yields, <clears throat> to your point, if the bond market is saying we could go into a recession, do you think there is a chance of an economic recession in America in the next, I don't know, two to four years? 
Uh, yes, I do. I think that the, I think the bond market, based on how it's pricing, uh, you know, how forward rates are lining up, is telling us that the the terminal rate, when the Federal Reserve raises rates, that is how high short-term rates will get, the overnight rate, will be somewhere in the neighborhood of one and three-quarter percent, and that if we get to that level, uh, that will be a level that, that would induce a recession. So if you think about it, I mean, we're not talking about uh, rates uh, uh, even as high as they were uh, the last time the Fed started to tighten. And, um, you know, and if you look at this, Brian, it's, it's really interesting. Um, everybody is so focused on negative real rates. That is, inflation's running, pick a number, 6%, I don't know, but it's somewhere in that area. And uh, we have, uh, you know, rates that are, you know, for 10 years around, uh, uh, you know, 140. So the, the return, the real return on bonds, uh, you know, is, um, you know, minus 4% uh, or more. It's, ter- it's garbage. Uh, it's terrible. Yeah, right. And so, but yet... <laughs> If we raised, I mean, if we raised or the Fed raised rates to be equal to the rate of inflation and we had zero real rates, you know, how would the markets react to a 6% overnight rate? I mean, obviously, asset prices would crumble. uh, Economic growth would go into a tailspin. And so this is there's something going on here, uh, something I have never seen in my career, and even in history I can't find, um, about the the fact that that real rates of interest are so low to maintain economic growth uh, that uh, there there's something structurally different uh, about this expansion. And uh, and the truth of the matter is is that uh, uh, the market is telling us the, and sending us a message is, hey, you know, you know, Fed, if you want to get aggressive, then you know, start realizing what's going to happen to the economy in the next couple of years, and uh, and you know, we're pricing for that. Well, maybe it's unprecedented money supply growth, unprecedented fiscal and monetary accommodation unprecedented pandemics, unprecedented government spending. It is truly an unprecedented time. I know Karen wants to get in here and she should, but I want to ask you very quickly then, Scott, uh, if you think that it's possibly going to recession in the next couple of years, doesn't mean tomorrow, doesn't mean mean two years from now. Does that mean we start to sell stocks now for then? Or can stocks rally into a recession? No, I mean, look, history shows us that you know the stock market will continue to rally until we get a few months away from a recession and i you know i was listening to the show prior to uh, coming on and um look interest rates you know going up is a signal uh, of confidence in economic growth and so uh you know rising interest rates are probably going to uh I don't. I don't want to say enable the market to rally, but are a signal that if the if the economy continues to expand in the short run, uh, that uh, stock prices should go higher because you know we're not going to have a recession for next another couple of years. Karen, thanks for being on. Where do you think inflation sort of uh, I don't know evens out after the supply chain issues get resolved? Well, obviously, you know, the 6% number, maybe it's somewhat transitory, maybe not. But where do you think sort of it'll, it'll level out? 
Well, you know, as I commented, life is transitory. But, um, you know, I, I think that, um, look, I think we're going to be surprised at the end of the day in the next year or two to find out that as energy prices reverse, uh, as uh, supply chains start to uh, reopen, uh, as demand, uh, which uh, uh, Secretary Yellen spent time yesterday talking about is, the surge in demand that we've gotten from all this stimulus has been in um, in goods. Uh, there's been, a, you know, a various services have been very slow and sluggish to come back. You know, as that demand shifts away from goods towards services, which I think it will and it will normalize, uh, you know, we, we, I think, are going to discover that the... Uh, that the inflation rate could actually be, you know, I, you know, there's a chance it could it could even become negative uh, huh. if uh, you know we, you know, a year or two from now, you know, as everything reverses and look at it, autos, um, air airfares, uh, oil, uh, metals commodity prices, all of these things are something that in the long run have elastic supply curves. But in the, in the short run, the supply curves are inelastic. But, you know, as Adam Smith said, eventually the invisible hand will appear and it will increase supply. And once we get the increase in supplies, mm-hmm. uh, I think that, that we'll find that there's going to be a, a reversion in, in uh, inflation. Scott Miner, we're going to leave it there. Uh, some big calls there, at least some maybe some some nervous calls about the economy in a couple of years, but right on about real rates. Scott Miner, we appreciate you phoning in tonight on an important day. Great to get your insight. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day and a good Bye. night. Bye. All right, so Bonwin, uh, a lot to unpack there. Where would you begin? Well, I, I think there's something to be said about you know peak inflation and and. Uh, I, he, it wasn't said explicitly, but I felt like it was alluded to. And, you know, particularly that last comment about things starting to mean revert over a more intermediate or long term and having supply loosen to meet to meet demand. Personally, what I think one thing that hasn't really been discussed as much is like, this twos tens has continued to flatten. If you look at that chart, it is continued to be in a downward curve. And I think it's that upward short term rate pressure, which is causing some some jitteriness. I mean, clearly, we've spoke about it ad nauseum in terms of how it's going to affect the finances or at least the perceived uh, effect around there. But, you know, when you talk about um, particularly some of the, you know, some of the companies like a, a DocuSign or some of these other large valuation companies, right? At some point, why am I going to continue to invest? And, 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 and the discussion around this has really been around 10-year discount rates. But let's talk about short-term rates. Why would I continue to invest in companies that are going to make money 20, 30 plus years from now if I can actually start getting some worthwhile yield in the short term? I don't have to worry about all the normalizing shocks over a protracted mm-hmm. period of time. This is money in terms of an IRR. I can get this back much faster. So I think that is something that, that I'm personally keeping an eye on. And I think was kind of alluded to in that discussion. Yeah, and calling maybe for a recession in the next couple of years. We're going to move on, but we'll probably get back to it a little later on in the show. Do we call this next story a docu-sign of the times? A fast-growing company's growth that is not growing quite fast enough, and Wall Street making it walk the plank for it. Docu-sign shares, that is not a misprint. They are down 29% right now, wiping out nearly a third of shareholder value. Let's find out what is going on with Deirdre Bosa. D, what's happening? 
Well, Brian, it's the fourth quarter revenue guidance that is the culprit here, suggesting or perhaps confirming a post-pandemic slowdown. This is a stock that had, of course, run up huge last year amid the pandemic. But today's after-hours dive takes it into negative territory on 2021. It also follows Salesforce's disappointing guidance earlier this week and broader underperformance from these enterprise software names in recent weeks. Now, what DocuSign CEO Dan Springer just said on the earnings call is likely not encouraging for investors. And that's why you saw the stock fall further in the afters. He said that they saw demand slow and the urgency of customers buying patterns temper into the second half of the year. He said that they expected an eventual step down from that peak growth levels during the pandemic. But he said that the environment has shifted more quickly than they anticipated. Brian, he was fielding lots of questions on why this was so unexpected, why he didn't see this coming earlier. And as you can see, those shares are down Wow, nearly 30% mm. for this former pandemic darling. Yeah, former, I think the key word is there. Deirdre Bosa, thank you very much. Guy, your take on docu-disaster. It wasn't that long ago that it was a darling. I mean, you're talking about a stock that was north of $300. I'll tell you, this is not a disastrous guide. Now, before you at me on Twitter, it's really not if you look at it. For a lot of companies, it's just a minor guide lower. But when you're trading even at current levels, it's 72 times next year's numbers. That's what's happening in this environment. People are shooting first, asking questions later, probably deservedly so. Now, I'll just mention this because I'm looking at it. I think the May low in this stock was about 180 or so. We're clearly through that right now, but that's sort of your line in the sand. We'll see where this shakes out tomorrow. But, you know, it's just this is just showing you how um, precise yeah and how well you have to do on earnings when you have valuations of this magnitude. I, and Tim, quickly jump in here. I mean, I, I expect there's going to be some bottom fishers coming in here tomorrow thinking this thing's going to pop, but I don't know. Down 30%? My gosh. That's not what I do. Uh, I, I mean, I, I tell you, I think that there's a combination here of DocuSign also, w which is, I'm not calling it a one-trick pony, but it's not Adobe, and, and I think a lot of people were painting it as it was. Also, I'm not hearing about a lot of enterprise weakness from a lot of other people. Um, so I, I think this is one where uh, we know about the pull forward. We know that they, look, they, they provide a service that I don't care whether we are unleashed and there's never COVID again or we actually get locked up again. It doesn't matter. It's a very valuable service, but it's not enough. And it's not enough to, to, to at least put the valuation on the company that it had. But again, I'm not hearing about an enterprise weakness from a lot of other people right now. That's not been the issue. Um, so this is concerning. Uh, it is, and uh, it's concerning for a lot of investors who are owning the stock today because now they're down 29%. All right, let's move on. On deck, is the iPhone boom finally slowing down? Reports that it might be, and it took Apple stock a little bit with it today, but are we reading into it too much? Plus, some wild moves at Energy OPEC holding fast. But what is next for oil after its huge recent drop? The Chartmaster will hit that chart. Stick around. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Apple. We're in the big Apple. I guess welcome myself back to the Apple. Anyway, shares of Apple slipping a touch today, but the move may not reflect the size of the news. There was a report that Apple has told suppliers that iPhone demand is weakening heading into the holiday. Again, just a report, but it did seem to impact the stock a bit. Or was that it? Let's trade this name here. Uh, Karen Feynman, what do you make of the move? And, and Apple didn't fall very much, and it popped on the, you know, the, the downturn the last few days. Are we reading into this too much? I think so. I mean, we hear this sort of every, I don't know if it's every year, but, or every big quarter. Sorry, my voice is a little hoarse. But <clears throat> I'm long, I'm staying long. If I tried to trade around every supplier story, I would have been out at the wrong time, in too high, um, sold it too low. So I'm a long-term holder here. The valuation is yeah. not cheap, for sure, but it obviously is a premier company. And, you know, at 28 times, which reflects some hardware gross margin and a lot more um, services gross margin, I think it's okay to own. I'm going to stay in it for the long term. I'm not going to get shaken out by these kind of stories. I'm going to say something, Guy Dami, that probably gets some Apple fans in trouble. It's not a dirty word. Bond. Is Apple stock kind of like a bond now? I mean, it seemed to act that way when the market was selling off the last few days. Well, if in bond you mean, you know, safe asset, yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. As the broader market was getting whacked, you know, the last couple of days, <clears throat> Apple traded extraordinarily well. We had Carter Braxton Worth talking about how the setup looked really good. You know, Karen's been talking about this. Tim, when Bonowin's on, he talks about it as well. You know, there have been peak to trough declines anywhere from 15 to 30 percent in Apple over the last three or four years. And I don't think we're on the precipice of one now. But what I found really interesting today, if you look at the price action of some of the suppliers, you would have thought if this was true, albeit with the market being higher, some of these names would have gotten whacked, and they really didn't. Taiwan Semi, Broadcom, you can go down the list, and they all traded reasonably well. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, teeth to this story. Now, we're going to find out with when some of these semis report if, in fact, that was the case. But right now, I'm not making too much out of it. You could slow from 100 to 99. You're still slowing down, but you're still going okay. We'll see what that slowdown, if it happens, may indeed be. All right, we are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Wild energy, oil climbing higher, and the chartmaster says the move is just beginning. He's charting it out next. Plus, a retail rebound. Big names reversing course as we close in on Christmas. So is there a retail rally still in play? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 
With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. All right, welcome back. We've got some breaking news out of Capitol Hill. Let's get right now to Washington and Elon Moy with more. Elon. Well, Brian, the House now has the votes it needs to pass a bill that would fund the government through February the 18th. The vote so far has been largely along party lines. Only one Republican voting with Democrats in favor. Once this bill clears the House, it'll head over to the Senate, where the timing of the final vote is uncertain. Lawmakers have until midnight tomorrow to avoid a government shutdown. But a handful of conservative Republicans are threatening to draw this process out into the weekend as a way of protesting the president's vaccine mandates. Now, leadership from both parties say they do not want this to happen and that they are confident this bill will eventually pass the Senate. They're just not sure exactly when. But, Brian, the first step now is for the House to pass this bill, and it now looks like they have the votes to do it. Back over to you. Oh, funding a government for another, what, two and three quarters months? That's the way we live now. Alon, thank you very much. Tim, is this material to the equity market at all? Not ha- hasn't been hasn't really been on the mind of equities. I will say that if you look at money markets and, and some commercial paper, there was some uh, you know, stress. Scott Miner talked about that in some of his notes. I think it's something that really was not front burner. But this is good news. Let's get on with it. All right, Tim, thank you very much. And some headlines there out of D.C. All right. So buckle up and keep your hands and your feet inside the ride at all times. And that ride is the oil market roller coaster. It rolled on today. Crude moving higher, nearly 3%, as OPEC and its oil-producing allies agreed to simply continue to increase their output each month by 400,000 barrels a day. Despite more supply on the market, the chart master sees prices bouncing from here. Let's get out of Carter Worth to break it down. Carter. Yes, quite a ride, and uh, it just gets down to this before we look at the charts. A five-week sell-off from 85.50 to 62.50, down some 27%. Do you play for a bounce? I think you do. First chart, what we know is you have a well-defined series of higher highs, each of which has failed at that internal trend line. You can see the annotations there, the down arrow. So we drop 16% in March, we drop 20% in July, and then we drop 27%. Look at the next chart. Look where these sell-offs stopped, right at uh, the lower band of this megaphone, if you would like to call it that. But the point is, we touched the line, we bounced beautifully today, big reversal day. So if you look at the next chart, where might we be headed? I think you get back to sort of the middle of the range, the middle of the megaphone. You can see in this next one, there's a, a line that I've drawn that sort of projects to 75. And the final chart, I've simply circled that level and drawn an up arrow, which is to say, uh, our reversal, after a 27% sell-off after five weeks down, you get more than just a barrel or two. So play for the bounce. And it could be quite the bounce if you're right, chart master, and you tend to be. So, Tim, uh, if the chart master is correct, you've got a few ways that you might want to play the bounce in oil. Dare we say the trade school is in session with Tim. Take it away. I, I- 
I, I like the trade school. I like Carter's call, and we list the Carter on a lot of different fronts. In oil, what I hear him saying is in an, in an environment where demand is a little bit choppy but going higher, um, this is a great place to be buying oil. It's a great place to be an investor, not a trader, the professor says. And, and I, I mean that. So let's go into the three names. First one's Exxon. Um, is Exxon sexy again? No, because it, uh, being sexy is not sexy in the oil space. And in fact, for Exxon, it's about uh, less capex. It's about higher free cash flow. It's about more downstream in chemicals. And, and it's about a, a dividend break even of $35 Brent so that this company can kind of do what it always did. And I think that's really where Exxon is. I think it's actually a perfect stock to own in this oil environment where I think oil will go higher, but I don't think it will soar. Then we have Chevron, and, and I'll call Chevron the company that, believe it or not, Exxon wants to be. And, and actually, Chevron, mm. so far ahead of the integrated peers in terms of running efficiently, cutting CapEx, they've said $15 billion in CapEx for 22. It's the bottom end of the range. It's, it's a small increase, but they're going to still crank out you know, $3 billion or so in the Permian. They're still going to be uh, you know, raising the dividend north of 65 bucks a barrel. I think they can do that. And, and then finally, Schlumberger, who, who also, you know, oil service stocks are not what they used to be. And, and I don't think Schlumberger wants to be what they used to be either. Again, a company that's focused on technology, a company that's focused on free cash flow. Uh, if you look at their last couple quarters of numbers, first of all, enormous debt pay down, uh, enormous free cash flow generation, again, relative to themselves. Um, you don't necessarily need to see uh, drilling go berserk. Uh, these guys are at the front of the list. They're best of breed. And you can be, that's right, an investor in oil companies, not necessarily a trader. They're run differently. And, and we've talked about that. Yeah, thank you very much for the trade school, Tim. So, Bonowin, do you like some of Tim's ideas here? And I do love the comment that Chevron is the company that Exxon wants to be. Uh, I think Tim makes a, a lot of great points. And I, and I really like how he came out. I'm not going to call it a disclaimer, but it's, it's essentially a proclamation. He's playing it as an investor, right? And I think a lot of times, particularly over the last two years, we've gotten caught up in this hype, seeing all these massive moves and the, and the crazy FOMO. You've got to have some core holdings as well. And this seems like a good, a good point to kind of like put on some of those names. Now, I am a proponent of clean and green energy, but I think that there's enough room for both, right? We can all sit at the table going out of, uh, going out of Thanksgiving into holidays together. I think you, you kind of want a, a well-shaped, rounded type of, uh, type of portfolio here. Um, you know, I, I certainly like playing it through the, the integrated or the services much more than I would the ETF. I think that the last kind of bus cycle that we had where that, that USO ETF was reshaped in terms of the holdings, swaps, and things of that nature, it does not track the commodity. And so, I, again, I, I second his call that the, the best way to get exposure, if you're bullish this thesis, is through the integrated and the servicers. So, so yeah, I mean, there's, I, I love to argue, and I, and I, I wish there was more debate here, but I, I really think he hit the nail on the head. Yeah, co costs are down. Cash flow is up. Guy Dami, in the past, I do remember that you have liked the SLB, Schlumberger. Do you still? I do, but I'll see your Schlumberger, and I'll raise you a Halliburton. And, but Tim spot on, and Bonowin echoed and made great points. But look at Halliburton. I mean, I thought it was off to the races in October. Stock was trading 27. It looked like a lot of upside. Obviously, everything stopped on a dime, but it's still in an uptrend. At current prices, it's probably trading at 13 and a half times next year's numbers. And you probably have about close to 35, 40 percent EPS growth. Not that that's necessarily the reason to buy it, but the stock is just too cheap here. And I think it's going to bounce off these levels. So I'm with Tim and Bonowin. I'll see you, Slumberger. I'll raise you an HAL. 
H-A-L. Got it. Thank you very much. And by the way, speaking of oil, gas, and all things energy, a special programming note. Next week, we're going to be at the World Petroleum Congress, the biggest oil and gas conference in the world, first time in American decades. We've got a great lineup, and this very important time for energy, we got the CEOs a Chevron, Tellurian, Pioneer, Baker Hughes, the former CEO of BP, and Patrick Poyan of Total Energies, not to leave out the European majors as well. Tellurian, by the way, will appear on this very program on Monday. That's all day, Monday and Tuesday, right here on CNBC. All right, coming up. Are investors falling back in love with retail? Some stocks of stores that sell stuff, they rose today. So how should you, if at all, play these names heading into the holidays? We will tackle that trade next. Plus, this stock trading near its 52-week low. And one of our, that's an ugly chart, good grief. And one of our traders says it is so bad, it may just be good, and they hit the buy button today. I'll bring you the name and the why, coming up. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at some of the retail stocks rocking a big rebound today. Shares of Bed Bath & Beyond up 6%. Kohl's up 3 Macy's getting a pop. Gap up 2 And Nordstrom up 2.5%. Let's get out of Courtney Reagan with more on the bounce and whether or not this is some kind of a trading thing or more fundamental. You're doing channel checks every day, Courtney, I'm sure. <laughs> what are we seeing around these retailers? This one's a little bit harder to figure out, Brian. It has been choppy for these guys, so I think it's too early to really call it a Santa Claus rally for retail. But it's fair to point out that many names that have been beaten down found some steadier ground today. So the XRT retail ETF, it finished up the day 2%. That's in line with the broader market, albeit still down 7% for the week, which is more than two and a half times worse than the S&P over that same time. Retailers that sell higher-end goods globally have been among the hardest hit recently, but today, Capri, Tapestry up 7 and 6% or so, respectively. Tapestry, though, still down 7% for the week, so it's got some ground to go. Nordstrom, as you mentioned, Brian, finally gaining today but down 9% for the week, 33% in a month. Denim players, Contour Brands, and Levi up 5 and 3% respectively, both lower for the week too. Gap also gaining 2%, but still off 9% for the week. It's looking a little more joyful for the online players today. The Real Real gave a pretty good November sales update, and while it didn't actually juice up its own shares, secondhand competitor site Poshmark gained 5%. Real, real, in fact, still about 54% off its 52-week high. Now, there's some strength in some specialty names. Bed Bath & Beyond also surging about 6-7% intraday. Still down 19% for the week, though. Designer Brands, that's the parent of DSW, up 6% today, down 15% for the week. Shopping center REITs are higher. As decent dividend payers, these names move higher on the potential for higher rates often. Maestrich, JLL, Tanger Outlets up 5%. Simon Property Group up 3%. So we're going to have to watch this trade closely, Brian, and see if today was an anomaly or the beginning of a trend. I don't know. Back over to you. Well, we're going to find out. Courtney, thank you very much. So, Karen, okay, Tapestry. I mean, at least today it was the Carol King of retail, but long term, it's not done very much. Yes. You like that, guys? What's your take overall on, re on retail, uh, Karen? Well, my biggest retail position is Target, but I do own Capri. Um, I do own some Foot Locker. I, I think that it's just a rotation into cheaper valuation stocks. If you look at the PE multiples here, some of them are high single digits or mid single digits even. And so if we are going to see higher rates, 
coming back again to that multiple, just the pressure of gravity of, of higher rates gets, to me, it makes these more attractive. And they'd sold off on the thought that Black Friday wasn't quite as good, Cyber Monday wasn't quite as good. But I think we're going to see sales that have very high gross margins because this is not a promotional environment. So they're getting full price. So I think there's more to go in the retail trade. All right, more to go there. Thank you very much, Karen. All right, I want to do a little bit of breaking news right now. Not a huge story, but it is interesting, especially as we're here in New York City, where a lot of people are waiting to return to the office. And this story is up on CNBC.com right now. Google workers in the U.S. will now not return to their office on January 10th. That was the previously announced date, which, of course, had been pushed back from the previously previously announced date. This, according to an email memo reviewed by CNBC.com's Jen Elias. You can read the full reporting right now. It's going up on CNBC.com. But Google reporters, reporters, Google workers will not return to the office as planned as of January 10th. Anybody? Bonwin, you got you got a take on this? Uh, the, the Omicron variant. There's more concerns now. It's the winter seasonality. Cases may pop. Uh, any market impact here on this kind of a story? No, I think it's more of a workforce um, type of, of flow through. You know, when, when we first I mean, clearly there's the, the Omicron overhang. But when we juxtapose the culture that is around these tech companies and big tech, it's like an innovative very um, accommodating type of culture. And I think they're just essentially saying, listen, what's most important to us is the health of our workers. And we just don't want to have to sacrifice that. Additionally, I think it's really a way to, to attract talent. And again, I'm not going to call out any names or cast aspersions, but there are definitely some old school companies that insisted that people come back and we saw outbreaks. And you've now seen, for example, some of the banks and investment banks having to come out and pay people for the additional workload and the stress mm -hmm. that it's causing. So for me, it's just more of a strategic way of attracting talent, retaining talent and separating one from their peers. All right. So again, once again, folks, the news there is that Google, according to an email reviewed by CNBC.com's Jen Elias, the story's up on the website now. Workers not returning to the office as of January 10th. We'll see if other companies follow suit. All right, coming up, this stock has seen some better days. It's now trading near its 52-week lows. One of our traders is buying on those new lows. The name and the trade stayed ahead. And later on, make sure your seat back and trade table in the upright and locked positions because options traders are forecasting a bit of a bumpy ride for the airline. We'll tell you who and why coming up. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Now let's reveal that really ugly-looking chart, and that is Viacom CBS. It is trading at 52-week lows, and the stock just continues to get hit, down more than 4% in the last two days. But Karen Feinerman is not deterred. She has been adding to those holdings today. Why, Karen? Not deterred. I am wrong, though. But I, I just think this is ridiculously cheap. You know, I, I, I liked it much higher than here. They came out with good earnings. They've got a lot of momentum with Paramount+. Plus. They have a lot of opportunity to sign up new subscribers. I know their content is much higher. The cost of, of developing the content is much higher, but the valuation here is getting ridiculous. I was kind of confused why. I read Mo Mo uh, Moffitt Nathanson had a very good meh note out after their earnings. Well, now it's 25% lower than that, 20-odd percent lower than that. At this price, I feel like the risk reward is really compelling. I know Disney is also down on streaming. Paramount Plus streaming, I guess, is not as exciting as it used to be, but they still do make a lot of money, a lot of cash flow. So I bought more today, held my nose, and just went for it. 
Tim, it kind of feels like a fast pitch. It's not, but it feels like that. If it was a fast pitch, where would you come in on Viacom CBS? Well, it's Karen's Viacom, and, and, and why not follow Karen, um, who's uh, as smart as they come, but also uh, her points are this. Uh, if you think about it, she mentioned Disney. Like, this is a company that's also divided up in segments like Disney. Um, they have a lot of content, and they're in a world where content is still king. Um, they're very cheap on a content play. They're probably less than nine times earning. I love the distribution deal they have with T-Mobile, which gets them out into places they might not. I think it's great for both companies. And, and yes, I think it, it kind of got caught up in the Archaicos fiasco when uh, on some level, even though, yes, it was uh, you know, a stock that had to be kicked back out because as they were selling off Archaicos holdings, it became a stock that the retail folks said, I'm gonna stick it to the hedge fund folks, gapped it way up, and then it lost all constituency. Yeah. And don't be confused by that. I mean, this is a real company. This is not a company um, that is just a meme stock. And, and so, yes, I think it's a very interesting play at this point. Yeah, guy, you wonder if that could have turned off some people, that wild move, and they said, oh, okay, it's related to that hedge fund that imploded. I'm just going to avoid it, maybe at their own cost. Listen, just on Yellowstone alone, this should be a $40 stock. I mean, Beth and you Rip are the show. best. You love it. It's the best couple in the history. It's the best couple in the history of cable television. Throw Kevin Costner in. I mean, it should be a $50 stock. It's too cheap. Karen talked about it. I don't know what's pushing it lower. Um, I think if the WSB crowd or the Reddit crowd gets their arms around this, it could easily go up $10 over the course of a couple days. I like the, I'm challenging you on the Yellowstone, though. You're going to go up against the Wire and Bloodline, yeah. even White Absolutely. Lotus. Absolutely. All night long. Really? All night long. Challenge. <laughs> Guy Adami. Oh, we got a dinner on the line. We're going to have a, we're going to have a poll on this. All right. We've got an after-hours alert on Zillow. Shares are popping after giving an update on the wind-down of its home-buying program. Karen, you flagged the move for us. What are you looking at? Yeah, I flagged it because I'm long from higher than here. It was, I thought, very good. They kitchen sink that when they got out of the uh, home buying business. They took, you know, giant, they set us up for giant write-downs. The getting out of the business is going much quicker than they had led us to believe it would, which is good. They're going to be cash flow neutral getting out of it. The balance sheet is in excellent shape, so they're taking $750 million dollars and doing a stock buyback, which seems obvious that they were going to do it, but they are doing it. So stock's up, I don't know, 9% or so. I really like it. I hated the home buying business. I love the rest of the business, and that's what we're left with. Good balance sheet, big buyback, and I think we'll probably get some more positive, quicker even than they said now, um, exit from the uh, home buying business. So I really like it. Okay, likes it. Yeah, maybe just the lesson here is don't let a computer do a human being's job. All right. Let's also check out the airline stocks. They took off today. The Jets ETF up 6%. The big move higher happening as President Biden says he is not planning any national travel lockdowns. And Japan just reversed its recent travel ban. But over in the options pits, traders are betting that these stocks may be about to hit an air pocket. Let's find out why. Bring in my co-options action. Yep, so taking a look at the Jets uh, Air Transportation ETF, we saw it trade about 2.3 times the average daily put volume today. That largely the result of a purchase of the December 20, December 17 put spread. The buyer of those bought over 4,000, spending about 75 cents a contract to put that on. Obviously, the buyer betting that it could fall below that higher strike by at least a premium they spent. That would put it between $19.25 and $17. As of December expiration, that would represent a decline of between 6 and 17%. And although there's over 50 constituent stocks in there excluding currencies, the top four, Southwest United American and Delta collectively, 
represent over 40% of it. Mike Coe, thank you very much. Bonwin Eisen, what say you? You a buyer of any of the airlines here or the options? No, I mean, listen, I, I, I like the trade um, and I like it that it's done on a spread basis, particularly given the term of the trade. I think with the micro and overhang, yes, I can point to some of the company's balance sheets, Southwest, um, Southwest, for example, in terms of names where I would start to like pick and choose. But I think generally speaking, you, you've, got these, you've got these headwinds. And, we, you know, we, we had the situation earlier when we had some of the uh, workforce that, that weren't on strike. Um, I just think there's just like a lot of unknowns, particularly uh, at this time of year, um, and, and I'd be staying away. All right, stay away there. For more options action, don't stay away from that. Be sure to tune into the full show that is tomorrow, every Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, your final trades. Like the Jets ETF, we got to fly through this final trade. Tim, kick it off. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Big Sexy is not Bartolo Colon, it's Exxon, XOM. Nice. Bonwin. Selling puts on Apple. Karen. Thanks, Brian. Uh, Zillow, I like this news. Guy. You're so far away, Brian, but Best Buy is so close. I love it. Carol King, you're the best. Guys, everybody, thank you. Thanks for watching tonight. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.